The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're moving now these next few weeks through the five precepts, and I thought tonight we could discuss in more depth the first training, undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm to living beings, and the phrase panatipata, um, it means like not to strike those who breathe, those creatures, those beings that breathe. And you know, that's it's kind of nice to be visceral about it because when we're in traffic or when someone's pushing our buttons, <clears throat> there is that impulse to strike out or if a bug lands on our skin or whatever it is. And you know, we probably have some built-in skill, hopefully, of refraining from at least some of those wanting to strike out, wanting to hit back. But it's just interesting when we acknowledge it, because even though we don't maybe actually strike out, but just to really get, oh, that's the response. When something is yucky, is painful, I want to hit something. And even, I'm sure you've noticed, like, even if the pain that we're feeling isn't caused by somebody, it's almost like, I'm hurting, you should hurt too. Have you noticed yourself, like, creating, striking out in some way, or creating some discomfort in some way, just because we're hurting? And that's lawful. It's not pretty kind of embarrassing to see that, but it's really lawful, like how the mind is conditioned. We live in this lawful universe. And uh, so part of what we're doing is we're training the mind to recognize these established patterns. We hate our discomfort, whether it's emotional discomfort, or physical discomfort, spiritual discomfort, we hate it. And the things we hate, we push away, we strike out. And so, I say it this way, so that when we start to explore in our own personal way, individual ways, undertaking a training, it's not a absolute don't kill because, or don't cause harm, because that would you know, be an incredible setup for failure. How can we be living beings in this world without causing harm or killing even, right? So it's really a training because undertaking that training really illuminates that tendency in our heart, deeply conditioned in our heart and mind to cause harm. And <clears throat> We see, of course, the more we look at it, it's always related to a strong sense of self. You don't have aversion without somebody who's aversive. So it's really good when we take on this training, it is a way of profoundly exposing the mind to the mind. 
And that's the way to see it. I think Gil Fransdahl said, I might have mentioned this a week ago or a couple of weeks ago at the first class, but the whole point of training in these precepts is all about cultivating interest, not shame. It's not about feeling bad, although we might feel bad. You know, there may be some remorse if we, because of some neglect, we end up stepping on some creature, some small creature when we're walking on a sidewalk and then we notice what we just did and then there might be that moral, morally sensitive flinch. Oh, you know, sorry about that. <laughs> and it feels yucky a little bit and that may be really appropriate to feel that and just let it be what it is, like let it in because that little moral flinch, you know, having stepped on a little insect or something like that, the unpleasantness, unpleasantness of it and the honest recognition of that unpleasantness changes who we are. And then going forward, I mean, you'll notice it. This is just something, you don't have to believe me, you'll see it directly. At least in the next few moments, there's a natural attentiveness to what's on the sidewalk. Like not wanting to step on other creatures if I, I can avoid it. And so that's like a simple, perfect example for how it all works. We take on the training not to cause harm because we've cultivated this value of harmlessness we notice moments when we cause harm. There's one of those longer centipedes in our bathtub, you know, searching for moisture. Probably see that sometimes. We have an old home, it's 1908, I think it was built. And uh, so we try to get them outside, but it's not so easy to catch those because they got those long, very delicate legs, lots of them. <laughs> you know, and to kind of get it into something and to get it outside. And, you know, sometimes I'll notice there's like, if I'm a little bit hurried, a couple legs will get caught in the, the usually yogurt container that I'm using to catch it in. And then there's that feeling like, oh, I probably could have been a little bit more full of care in doing this, a little bit more patient, not so rushed. Or we've had some work done in our home and that means the door has been left open as the people doing the work have come and going, coming and going. So lots of flies inside then because of the renovations. And, uh, and then just like catching the flies without harming them and getting them outside. And, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that you have to practice in this way. I'm just saying that for me personally, it's a really good practice of caring enough. I care enough about my own well-being to not want to have to live with flies, right, in the house, buzzing around. So I care about myself, but I also care about these flies. And I think ultimately they're going to be happier outside 
I'm not sure about the centipedes, but pretty sure about the flies that they'll be happier outside. And to just uh, be willing to let this training go everywhere in our lives. And the, the other precepts are just specific places to bring this training, like what does this beautiful, like put it in a positive, this beautiful wish to live without causing harm look like when I have a heart that desires things. Good food, good stuff, good relationships. Right, so this is the second precept. So in all of those places where we're attracted to stuff and we want to take the stuff we're attracted to and I have this beautiful, I've been cultivating this beautiful wish not to cause harm by taking what hasn't been freely given to me, does it naturally coming to me, offer to me, then it illuminates all those places. Is this really being offered to me? I had a really interesting experience. There was a senior Sri Lankan monk who was giving a talk at the center. This is at least 15 years ago, if not longer ago. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the night, I was going to drive him to a town, um, uh, like Chaska. Or it's, it was quite a drive. And it was a cold winter night. So I grabbed my meditation shawl and I said to the monk, and I, in an ambiguous way, like, do you want to, I don't know what I said, but it was ambiguous, like, do you want to use this? Or, But I think it was more ambiguous than that. And it was really good. He he clarifies, like, are, are you giving this to me? You know, what, I forget exactly how he said it, but he, he wanted to know, like, are you asking me if I want to use it when we're in the car, or are you offering this as a gift to me? Because I did it in an ambiguous way. And it was it was really interesting because it, it, it created an opportunity like I could have said, it would have been very easy to say in that moment, no, no, I just thought you might be cold in the car because my heater doesn't work very well. The car I had at the time, you know, was an, was an old car. And I thought, you know, this might keep you warm. You're an older person. But in that moment, I realized, no, I could really, and it was a, it was a nice meditation shawl, you know, and I liked it. <laughs> and but it was really interesting. Like in that moment, I could really give it away. Like no, no, I do like it. I do want it, but I also want you to have it. So I said, no, no, I'd like you to have this. And he said, you know, and monks, you know, the way they're trained, they don't make a big deal out of things. They're not effusive. Like when uh, in Asia, when monks do their rounds to get food, they're silent when the food is being put in the bowl. They don't say, oh, thank you so much, I really appreciate this. So there's just this uh, etiquette around these trainings about yeah, keeping things really clean so that when we depart from that interaction, there's no unfinished business. And for me, like, with that, even though I lost a really nice meditation shawl, um, I what was left in my heart was really nice. I really liked it. And it wasn't even so much that I had given the senior monk a nice meditation shawl. It was that little insight that I could let this go. 
you know, and I could give it freely. So this is the whole point of these trainings, is just to illuminate these places in life that we would otherwise maybe do on autopilot. And then the same thing around sexual activity, or not, not having sexual activity. It doesn't matter how you understand or think of your sexual lives, but that whatever it is, can it be something that doesn't cause harm, that doesn't leave painful reverberations for myself and for others? What would that look like? And we have, you know, with all of these areas, speech, and we'll go through them in the weeks ahead, consuming intoxicants, including media, would be, I think, certainly these days, you know, another intoxicant besides recreational drugs and alcohol. But in these places that are being highlighted, we're bringing that beautiful, expansive valuing of harmlessness. And it's seen as like a beautiful ornament, or I think I mentioned a scent. This is from Ajahn Jayasaro's article that I sent everyone the link for. He's, he writes in that chapter, The Beauty of Sila, he writes, to maintain our devotion to the precepts, we need to remember that spiritual life is not just about doing, it's also about not doing. Abstaining from things is neither immediately inspiring nor dramatic. We don't see sudden progress in non-harming or non-equivativeness or in the not coveting things which are not ours. In the same way that we might from a good set or a good retreat. But there is movement, even if it is like that, even if it is like that of an hour, um, the hour hand of a clock, you know, that moves very slowly. And he writes, and sila is a treasure. It is merit. It is parami one of those beautiful qualities of the heart. How wonderful it is that by living this life sincerely, sila is steadily accumulating and maturing in our heart. The Buddha said that sila is the most beautiful adornment for a human being. It is the only fragrance that is all-pervasive. But the skill is to remember it, to recollect the beauty of virtue, bringing it up to refresh and to give joy to your heart and mind. So remember those, uh, I don't know, four reflections that I sent everybody after our first week. The last one, this is what that's talking about. Like every night, for example, because it may, may be easier to remember, like when you're in bed, you got your PJs on, everything's taken care of, to take a couple minutes and to reflect on your sila. And if you're conditioned like a lot of us, we're going to immediately want to think about, review all the mistakes we made, where our sila was less than ideal. We took something that wasn't actually given to us, or whatever it was. But maybe just to reprogram ourselves, let's begin, when we do this reflection at night, let's begin by bringing to mind, like he said, it's not so much what we did that was wrong, but all the things 
we all the wrong things we didn't do. You know? Like, I didn't cut that person off on the highway. I let them, they seemed to be in a hurry. I could have, it was my place, you know, but I slowed down, I gave that person the space to do what they needed to do or what they thought they needed to do. Oh yeah, that feels good. That not causing harm, that not, you know, being in that dog-eat-dog relationship with another human being. And I'm guessing this is going to be hard for most of us to bring to mind the beauty of sila, all the goodness, all the ways that we, this value of harmlessness got expressed, little acts of kindness, little moments of appreciation, appreciating someone, seeing the good in another person. In the Thich Nhat Hanh lineage, some of you maybe don't know him, but he died recently, a wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk, and he taught in the West for a long time because he wasn't allowed to go back to Vietnam um, until his later years. But they have a ritual that the, all the monastic communities and the lay people staying at the monasteries do, and a lot of the lay practitioners in that tradition also do this, where, I forget what they call it, but you're basically shining a light, helping people see their goodness. You know, so you'd sit in a circle with a group of Dharma friends, and you would take time to acknowledge, to practice seeing the good in another human being. Shine a light on that. So we can do that with ourselves every night. And this is that, remember last week, I spent a little time just breaking down like how we do these trainings. One is we learn how to use breaks. So this is the capacity to refrain. I feel like killing that spider, but I'm not going to. So that's, that's a moral muscle we want to develop. But also this positive end of that, like to really imagine and, and, and even feel this. I was reading an article from the New York Times, this probably, I think it was 205, so many years ago. But it was uh, about some research about helping kids become uh, moral beings. And uh, actually, for a lot of the years, like elementary years, it's actually more helpful. Can we just read this? Um, it's actually more helpful to, instead of saying, um, you shouldn't do this behavior, or it's really good that you do this behavior, because that's often what we're taught as teachers and parents, you know, talk about the behavior, not the person. But there's a place where it's really good, like, uh, you don't want to be a cheater, do you? Or you want to, you know, be play fair or whatever. So you, you, you kind of make it like, oh yeah, that's who I want to be, you know? And we are in this place of being self-centered, you know? We aspire maybe to drop that whole edifice of self, and maybe we've had some experiences 
where that edifice, that weight of self-centeredness has fallen away. But a lot of time it's very much here, the sense of being a self, being self-centered. So when it is here, what kind of self do we want to be? Well, I want to be someone who's kind and loving and forgiving. Now, I can't always manifest that, but I'm pretty sure that's a happier place than being the one who's resentful and angry and grumpy and aggrieved, right? So we can use that positive ideal, maybe we'll call it, like where we imagine ourselves like being the one who doesn't have to get angry or doesn't have to act on the anger. So we need to be the one when we are angry to know that, yeah, I can feel that anger and I don't have to act it out. But it's also, it's actually more potent to, to use the positive ideal because if our, you know, the sort of sum total of our moral life is to sort of be looking for the beastly nature to come out and knock it down, <laughs> you know, stop, don't do that. It's like some of you who are parents, and I was an elementary school teacher for a number of years, you know, that doesn't work. We'll get exhausted. And it doesn't really uproot the tendency. But we still want that muscle to be able to stop unwholesome behavior when we can. It's better than letting it act out. So by, you know, having that kind of very clear training not to kill, then it just illuminates places in our life, right? It puts a natural break in our life. And it will, you know, even in terms of shopping for food, does that mean I shouldn't buy meat? And it's like, no one, I'm not, it's not really my place to tell people whether they should buy meat or not buy meat. But we should be interested, don't you think, in the question. And, and where is the answer to that question? Well, we look at our moral sensitivity. When I go to the store, grocery store, and I shop this way, what does that feel like? Like, and I shop in a, with awareness. Not just the sort of seeing, but also that breadth of awareness that we understand cause and effect. Like how this mango got here, or how this shirt was made, or how this whatever. Right? We're seeing the whole picture. That's the whole point of mindfulness. This is the comprehension comprehension, you know, where the mind wisdom is discerning the full picture. Because the choice, it may seem easier to be oblivious to the moral implications of how we shop and how we speak and how we conduct ourselves sexually and how we make our way in the world, you know, in terms of our livelihood. It can seem initially easier to be oblivious, but have we actually personally done the work to see what is the cost of obliviousness in our hearts? Hey, Robert, would you turn the top two lights up a little bit more so it's a little bit more light in the room? 
They're about halfway, maybe. Great, maybe a little bit more. Great, thanks, Robert. So when we do this reflection at night, I mean, remember the Buddha said that sila, I'm rereading this passage. The Buddha said that sila is the most beautiful adornment for a human being. It's the only fragrance that is all pervasive. But the skill is to remember it, to recollect the beauty of virtue, bringing it up to refresh and give joy to your heart and mind. And this is uh, in that, what I wrote out to everyone, I called it the bliss of blamelessness or the happiness of non-remorse. And it won't be perfect, but really challenge yourself not to just go to those places of remorse. We need to go to those places of remorse. I mentioned, uh, maybe it was last week, that we turn those places of remorse into a kind of monument in our heart that reminds us, honey, don't do that. Because when you do it, it feels like this, right? Just that simple cause and effect. Those painful places where we flinch when we remember how we behaved. Oh yeah, I was really unaware. I was stupid or whatever kind of language you use for yourself. But the point isn't to dwell on the, on the sort of being stupid. The point is to understand that arising as a lawful, a natural process. So when there's this obliviousness, not being aware, and the stimuli, then the mind, the body is likely to act in this way. And then afterward, there will be this yucky feeling of remorse. And then if I'm still unaware, I might turn that yucky feeling of remorse into a lot of shame and think a lot about how I'm a bad person. And then that will also be a yucky feeling. And then I'll relate to that, like, yeah, I really am a bad person, right? And I could spiral into a lot of self-hatred. But morality is deeply pragmatic, right? Because the wisdom of morality is always look like, how can I take care of this life? And how can I take care of all life? And we don't expect a simple answer. It's really like moment to moment. And this is one of the things that you want to be, we want to be on the lookout for in our training, in our sila practice, like thinking, I just need to make this bar. Okay, I'm not going to kill spiders anymore, and then I'm golden. Because there's no end to this training. Life is so complex, and um, it is such a deep setup, <laughs> right? Just consuming. Like, and now with the more consciousness about global warming, Robin was mentioning today, we were talking about sila, and just about flying, and just like to see a loved one, or whatever it is that we might fly to do, to do some work, 
But there's cost to that. And how many shirts do we need? Because there's cost to that. And there's also cost, a cost to freaking out about how complex it is, right? That's also a cause for harm. We're harming ourselves. If we feel, and we get tight when we think there's a way to figure it all out. And then when I figure it all out, then I'm done. But that's not really the point of sila. It's really to keep breaking the heart open and to um, cultivate a taste for deeper and wider sensitivity. Because it's our self-centeredness that blocks sensitivity. In a way, you could see it as like two options. We can be involved in self-centered activity, identified with a sense of self and what the self wants, which is the normal mode. So this is like the usual way we're active in our lives. Or, because any self-centered involvement is blocking sensitivity. You know, as long as I'm operating the world as if there's a me who's trying to, like, even a me trying to give a good Dharma talk, if I'm in that mode, I'm not really sensitive. So, but when we're sensitive, when we're valuing sensitivity in, in the, this course, moral sensitivity, how our way of thinking, speaking, and acting might be causing harm to ourselves and others. If we really value that sensitivity, then we have to let go of control. So the control comes out of, not the control, but the response, the moral response, the actions, those moral actions will come out of the sensitivity as a natural process. Like I mentioned, the moral flinch, you know, and how we're naturally more sensitive to what's on the sidewalk after having just stepped on, like sometimes at uh, IMS, a place I've done a lot of practice. I think I've either been teaching or practicing out there for three years of my adult life now, or getting close to that at least. And uh, there's a four mile loop or three and a half mile loop, something like that. And sometimes after a big rain, you know, all the earthworms start to crawl on the roads. And if you're walking and you're not paying attention, you're gonna step on a lot of earthworms. And then it's always the question like, are these earthworms gonna find their way back to soil? You know, when the soil gets saturated, they come out to, so they, I guess so they can breathe and don't drown. But like, do I stop and move them back? Or do I, try, you know, and there's no answer. <laughs> You know, it's like you can't ask God, tell me what to do. Well, you can, but you may not get an answer. And so this is that, that sensitivity. And uh, like, can I just be sensitive? And maybe you move a couple earthworms back into the soil, you know, because they're really far out in the road. It's just a matter of time before a car runs over them or they get dried out because it's early morning, you're taking a nice walk and all of a sudden there's this moral catastrophe that you're in the middle of 
and you're a moral being, a morally sensitive being. And, and you have this option like to be oblivious, but it's not so easy to go back, is it? Once we are, are aware that these are breathing beings that don't want to get run over, it's hard to be oblivious, to know what to do. And this is just one tiny example of the endlessness of this. Even like, uh, I was just looking at Cam, you know, and I know he works downtown and running into people all day long, and even like being self-absorbed in our own thoughts or listening to our music or whatever, or actually being in relationship with the people we're passing. And not some kind of contrived, you know, demonic smile. <laughs> but, but actually having an authentic interaction, even if it's not in words, but just like understanding there's a breathing being, a suffering being, there's a creature that wants to be safe and comfortable, just like me. There's a human being that's probably burdened in all kinds of ways that I can't conceive of in the same way that I have my burdens. And that changes things. And we have that choice, that moral choice, to be in relationship with each other or to choose not to be in relationship with each other. You know, to be sensitive or not. And to really see that how sila is so fundamental to the awakening process. I think I mentioned the story about Ajahn Chah where the Thai people were asking him, why don't you teach the Westerners who are coming to Thailand to ordain or learn Buddhism, why don't you talk that much about sila? And he said, well, you're absolutely right, they're not really going to make any progress without it, but I'm happy for them to figure that out on their own. <laughs> Sounds like a wise parent, you know, it's like telling your teenage daughter or son or whatever, child, that, you know, this is how you should behave, it's not going to work. But, uh, but to sort of be there when they bump into life, you know, when life delivers those messages, and to kind of be a wise friend and share how that learning happened in your own life, often in painful ways, right? Can be really helpful. Like, oh yeah. Because this is the thing about sensitivity, is like all good things flow from sensitivity. But it has to be done in the right sort of pacing, right? Because if, if we're too sensitive, we freak out, we feel overwhelmed, and we rush back toward, as, in any way we can, even in ways that can be quite destructive, we run back towards distraction. So we have to open, cultivate sensitivity in a way that we can tolerate, and that we see directly the benefits of it. We feel the enlivening benefits of this moral sensitivity. It can't be a should. We really have to connect it with freedom. How numbness, obliviousness, not caring, not my responsibility, 
how that's a dead energy. It's a deadening energy. It's a heavy energy. I see this a lot, just and a lot of you know this about me, but just this uh, deep impulse in my mind to, to want to escape to some quiet place where no one will bother me. And you know, I have a pretty peaceful, nice life. <laughs> I, got, I got a good job, surrounded by nice people, live in an orderly place, have a nice home, and still, I just have this deep, like, put my head in the dirt, you know, that, like an ostrich. Do they really do that, stick their head in the dirt? <laughs> I should look that up. <laughs> They're getting a bad rap, but we do that. I mean, we unconsciously think that being oblivious, being numb, being closed down is the way. And uh, these days, you know, with the uh, somewhat faltering reckoning around racism and also that whole reckoning around uh, sexism and uh, the Me Too movement, both which seems, seem to have peaked, you know, just the interest. And part of what I experience, and I'm guessing a lot of us do, is this like, all right already. You know, it's like, like, do I really have the capacity to care? Do I have a willingness to be sensitive? What do I need? What does the heart need to continue to value sensitivity? And we can bring this up in the small groups, but to reflect on that, like, what gets in the way of our valuing sensitivity? What are we afraid of? And I think part of it is this um, seeing sila as a thing of beauty, seeing the sensitivity as a thing of beauty, feeling like really acknowledging that enlivening aspect is joy, like really sensing the joy of having a heart that feels, that's moved, that cares. Like the opposite of numbness, the opposite of alienation, the opposite of disconnect. Like, oh, I choose this, I want this. And like even in terms of that strategic use of identity, we identify with being the person who cares, who feels moved, who's touched by the beauty and touched by the sorrow and the injustice, and feels enlivened like that's a beautiful thing, even if I don't know what to do about it. Like I, I've started to turn a corner around, you know, I used to have strategies for when I come across people who are asking for money when I'm driving my car. There's a number of places at intersections in our neighborhood around here where I live where that happens, you know, and you just, it's a regular occurrence if you're in the car. <clears throat> and um, so, you know, being a Buddhist, I thought, I need a strategy, right? So, and I even shared my strategies with people, like, you know, you have something to give, and. And I thought, oh, that would free me up from the exposure of those situations. And now I realize that 
regardless of what I do, the important thing is not to be afraid of the discomfort of the exposure. And, uh, and to let the response come out of having a more honest relationship, more clear, sensitive relationship with that exposure. So instead of having a strategy so I don't have to feel what I feel, can I learn how to be willing to feel what I feel? Like what does it feel like to be, you know, in a relative sense, I, I think I speak for more than a few of us, we are the 1%, you know, I'm, in a lot of ways I'm just barely middle class, but in the great scheme of things, I could buy any food that I want to eat, I can probably get, you know, I can afford to eat it. And so what, is, what, what does that feel like when there's so many people and other creatures that are really on the edge of survival and not doing well at all? What does privilege feel like? Am I okay feeling that? Or am I unconsciously or maybe even consciously choosing not to feel that? What privilege feels like? And you know how it is, it's like, but if I feel that, when I give everything away? Well, remember, we're only going to do what leads to happiness all around, right? Which will be a cause for joy for ourselves to be taking, you know, feeling that participation. It's like that's, that's the deal we have to keep coming back to with ourselves. We have to say to ourselves, hey, we're in this together. It's not me against you. You know, it's like, we're not going to actually do something, Mark, that causes our self-harm. We're, we're actually, what we're doing is we're challenging the notion, this is that self-centered idea, the self-centered construct, that my well-being is opposed to your well-being. And is that actually true? Like, can my well-being be intrinsically tied to everybody's well-being. But we don't even need to know the answer. We're just going to explore directly because we know our own well-being. Right? That's our barometer. And if you think your well-being is isolated from other people's well-being, try that. Try really uh, attending to your well-being in a way that is not connected to everybody else's well-being and see if that's really well-being. As long as we're valuing sensitivity, but we can't really take care of our well-being without sensitivity. And this is why in Buddhism, morality is something from the inside out. It isn't something given to us from the outside. We have to become a morally sensitive being in order to have the happiness of a morally sensitive being. We can't do it according to some standard. Okay, I'm not killing spiders, or I'm a vegan, or I'm only buying clothes that are built in countries that have good labor laws, or whatever you know we might kind of do. And some of these things would be you know nice things to reflect on for sure and pay attention to. But if we look more deeply, we see I'm just trying to avoid having to be sensitive. 
in a world that is deeply broken and unjust and where life eats life all day long. And that's the world we live in. And power corrupts always. <laughs> power corrupts. We get confused when we have privilege. Right? That the thing that privilege does to us, even middle class privilege or whatever you know you might consider your privilege, what privilege does, I see it so clearly in my life, is after we get comfortable with whatever we're comfortable with, we somehow believe that we deserve the comfort that we currently have. But there's, it's not written anywhere that we deserve the comforts that we have. It's just the comforts that we have. It doesn't mean we don't deserve them. That, that's also not written anywhere that we don't deserve the comforts that we have. But there is no kind of right or wrong. And that's that place of moral sensitivity that we have to learn how to be in the middle of and dance with and participate with. And that's really the invitation of the Course is to get really curious about what that's like. And so for this week, um, working mostly with just the general value of non-harming and more specifically, just to kind of sharpen a little, the more specific invitation to train and not killing to be really curious about little and big ways we might be participating in the killing of living beings. And just let a light, let those places get illuminated and see if this could be in the direction of freedom and happiness and ease. Are we just entering a hornet's nest that we're gonna forever regret? I mean, that's a frightening idea, isn't it? That the way to real happiness is to be morally oblivious. Like what kind of world does that lead to? And do we want to be living in that kind of world? And you know, when we think about people who are extremely privileged, you know, have a lot of power and beauty and resources, you know, just the fear because like I said a, a few minutes ago, with power, with privilege, with wealth, with comforts, comes the clinging to them and the expectation that I should always have those. And that the real inevitable betrayal when, because everything's going away, right? We don't take anything with us, it's all going. And so anything that we're pretty sure that I deserve is going to be a painful surprise when it is lost, is taken away, or it changes. So maybe I'll leave it here. So um, just a reminder of those reflections so the, to keep in mind to get really interested in what you do with moral lapses, like where you make a serious mistake and cause some harm to yourself or another. Just look at what your mind's doing with that and just get a sense of a skillful way to be relating to those places where you've made a mistake. And then you might just consider how might 
over time, not necessarily right away, because it might be too painful, but over time, how can I build a monument with that yucky feeling, the remorse that's left over from having made a mistake, so that it will stand in my heart, it will live on in my heart as a beautiful reminder. Like, is it Montgomery where they built the lynching museum? Anybody remember? Is it Montgomery? Yeah. And uh, like, uh, when and I have been thinking about getting down there just to go visit, and it's like, it's sort of an interesting thing for a culture to do, you know, this deeply humiliating part of our culture where we killed people in the ways that we did for decades, and including up in Duluth. I don't know if people know that. There's an interesting monument in Duluth to the lynchings that happened up there. You can visit next time you're up in Duluth, downtown. Um, but anyway, to spend a lot of money and to get some wonderful artists and, and deep thinkers to like how to create a museum and a monument to the stupidity and ignorance and uh, violence of, of us that live on in our hearts, like to not forget. And I often mention Joanna Macy had this idea about the plutonium from our nuclear power plants and like, you know, the idea is to like bury it really deep somewhere in the bottom right? or wherever they do it. But she thought like, no, the thing to do is build a beautiful monument of the stupidity of having nuclear plants that create a toxin that lasts for, I forget what the half-life of that is, but it's hundreds of thousands of years, right? That plutonium before it begins to degrade. And like, oh yeah, remember, this wasn't a good idea. <laughs> you know, this was not wise. And so to think about your moral lapses in that way. And then that, the last thing I'll mention is just before you go to bed, to really bring to mind all of the mistakes you refrain from, all of the beautiful things that you manifested in that day. And remember, like uh, Ajahn Jarasaro says, a lot of it is what you didn't do. The beauty of your day, a lot of that beauty was what you didn't, you chose not to do. Some of it will be what you chose to do. But choosing not to do something is doing something. <laughs> you know, that moral restraint is something. It's something of beauty. So thanks for coming, everyone. Hope to see you next Monday night. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.